Those are beautiful words, and, um, and I appreciate just being able to sit and listen and take those in. Thank you, Bill, for doing that. And um, we'll be looking at that passage in a little bit, but let's, let's pray first. Father, we are kind of uh, blown away um, when we think about your love and uh, just singing that song and having it wash over our hearts and our souls and... and uh, Sometimes I just get so moved I, I can't get over it. That, um, that line about not wasting time on regrets because of your love. And how that forgiveness is, seems to be the most basic undergirding act of your love. <clears throat> and Father, I ask that you help us to duplicate that in our relationships, all of them not just the ones that are so important to us, but all of them. So, Father, we are coming to you this morning as we look into your word and, and as we sing your praises and sing about your initiation and who you are of our, your initiation into our lives and, and who you are <clears throat> and what you have done for us and how you have um, shown us your love. Father, we submit to you. Father, there are so many things. I just keep thinking of that psalm that, uh, that where the psalmist is talking about how the, the earth seems to be shaking and, and uh, the seas seem to be roaring and, and just the imagery that that brings, uh, brings to mind. And sometimes that's how this world feels like. And, um, but we know we have a solid rock to stand on that you keep our, our feet secure. Father, I pray for the people <clears throat> in Florida who've, who've suffered that terrible collapse and those families who are waiting to hear from about loved ones. And, and continue to pray for the people who have lost loved ones because of a virus. And Father, we just hold them up and, uh, and we are asking that you help us be the church that we are supposed to be in these circumstances that we be the church that reflects your character, your integrity, your honesty, your vulnerability. We thank you for how you have shown that to us. And so, Father, we want to remain in you, and we want to, to remain listening and sensitive to your spirit of how it moves among us, how it moves in our, our hearts individually, but how it moves in our church. And, Father, we want to follow you to wherever that leads us. And it may lead us to a place, as, as, as it happened to you, that um, you went and your own did not receive you. We, we recognize that risk, but we're willing to take it. And uh, we want to take it because you uphold us. And so, Father, we ask that you take your word this morning and use it into our hearts. Help us to see you a little bit clearer. Help us to obey you a little bit more faithfully. And help us to, uh, to love you and love others a little more deeply. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week we started a series, a uh, summer series I'm calling Why Christianity Makes Sense. And uh, it's, uh, I kind of told the story about how I was, this was introduced to me through uh, a webinar I attended. Uh, a man named N.T. Wright was talking about these uh, seven values that, that seem to point to things, that seem to point to something beyond us. And I thought to myself, this is really some good things. And uh, I thought we might go ahead and, and uh, do this for a summer series. Uh, the seven that he mentioned are justice, love, truth, beauty, spirituality, freedom, and power. And uh, what he's saying is that these values go beyond 
our human uh, existence. They transcend borders. They transcend languages. They transcend uh, generations and cultures. These are things that are common to every single human culture on the planet, that we, all of us think these are important. And they are common because they point to something. They point to something greater than ourselves, something bigger than ourselves. And of course, we would say they are pointing to the Creator God, the one true Creator God. That uh, these are things that God has implanted in us as, a, as part of His image, that He has given us the image of God. And these, that's why these things are, trans, are transcend so much, the things that are a part of us. So they, part, they point to something that is greater than us, bigger than us, uh, wider than us, but it also points to why this world does not make sense. And we look around and, and we want to put the pieces together and we want to think, we want the world to make sense, but it just doesn't. It's, it, it just doesn't seem to, one piece doesn't seem to fit with the other. And the reason of that is because all these things are broken. Uh, they're broken in us because we have rebelled. And uh, we, we know that they're important and yet we don't seem to get it right. We don't seem to do it. We all know last week we talked about justice. We know justice is important. We know that it's, that it's crucial. We know we need justice uh, on the personal level, the social level, and then the international level. We want the countries to act justly. We want our country to act justly, except when it's in our national interest. And then we kind of fudge a little bit. And it's broken, it's, it's just, it's broken. Uh, they also, some of them seem to seem pull against each other. Uh, for example, relationships and freedom. We know that's important. We're going to talk about love this morning. We know those relationships are important, but when you enter a relationship, you naturally have to give up some of your individual freedoms. That's just the way it is. And so in some ways, they seem to kind of pull against each other. But that's, that's why we can't seem to make sense. But this is what the church has to offer. This is what we have to offer as individuals and as a church. Now, as individuals, there's no way that we will all reach on this side of eternity a balance of all seven of those things, okay? There's no way. As an individual church, there's no way that we can actually minister in that way at the same time all seven of these virtues, all seven of these values. But as a worldwide church, these are the things that we are to be up to. These are the things that we are supposed to be getting on with. We are to bring the eternity in the future and bring it to the present. This is the job of the body of Christ. This is the job of the kingdom in this particular time period as we wait to the return of Christ. And so last week we talked about justice. And we all want justice and we all need justice. Uh, it's, um, this is the statue that represents justice. And it's there for a reason. Uh, she has the scale in her left hand that kind of indicate balance, that we're always looking for balance and truth and, uh, and it's objective balance. And she has a sword, you know, it is not in this picture, but she has a sword in her right hand symbolizing the act of justice, of punishment where it is needed and correction where it is needed. And she's blindfolded. In other words, it doesn't matter who she's dealing with. It's going to be equal for every single person. That is the ideal. And that is something we all want, something we all need. We all need justice. But it also is very impersonal. What we're going to be looking at this morning is the value of love. And I am proposing that Christ is the embodiment of love. He is what we have to offer. This is what the world needs so desperately, and yet it has, it has so meticulously and efficiently corrupted it and confused it. But this is what we have to offer. This is what we have to offer the world, is 
the embodiment of love itself. We have like one job, and this is what our one job is to do. Everything else comes out of this, is to offer the world the love that is embodied in Jesus Christ. And yet, we have, not just the church, I'm talking about the world, we have confused love so efficiently, we don't even know what it means anymore. But this is what we have to offer, the very embodiment of love. If it's not love, then it's not God, okay? If you're hearing something in your head and you feel like this is God speaking to you or this is the Holy Spirit, look at it. If it's not love, it ain't God. By the same token, if it's God, then it's love. Then it's loving. This is the second value we'll be looking at. And we've all needed it. We all confuse it. We all want it. We, we are all looking for true love. We're all looking to fall in love. Uh, after the pandemic, this is a, this is a, a young woman named Marissa, uh, goes by the, the label Marissa of New York. And I apologize for the blurry photo. It's the best I could find. But she started a, uh, a TikTok page and stuff called, it, called uh, uh, No Lonely Friends. No More Lonely Friends. And what she's doing is she plans these picnics for people who are looking for friendships. And this is the one in New York. She is in New York. Then she's got one going on in D.C. And then she's got one in Boston. This is just how desperately we need this. And then you got these two guys, Brentley and Jeffrey. They also started a page that went viral. And uh, they went online saying, we're, we're in need of friends. And uh, they said, we're pretty cool guys. <laughs> it says, we hang out at this park. Uh, we also like comic books and movies. And uh, come join us. And I put those up there just to say, this is what our world is like. We need this. We know this is, this is something we need. This is something we desperately want, is love, affection, friendship. We cannot be human without it. Most of us know that the, the Greek New Testament has four words for love. Uh, the Greek language, some of them say seven, some nine, but in the New Testament we have four words for love. One that talks about an affection for things, you know, like I, you know, I love my teddy bear or whatever. I love uh, the food at, at Lake Taco or whatever. Uh, we talk about that. That's storge. There's also a word for erotic and romantic love. And there's a, love, uh, there's a word for, for faithful friendship love, philia, philos. But then there's the word that the Christians have really latched on to, and that's agape. And that is this self-giving, sacrificial kind of love. We kind of criticize and lament and, and as English speakers that we only have one word for love. Even I've done that. I've criticized that we only got one word, and it's hard to make that, that workhorse word mean so many things because there's so many shades. But in some ways, it's a good thing because regardless of all the shades of meaning love, it always, always, always implies a relationship. And I think that's an important thing we need to grasp as we get into this topic, that it always implies a relationship, and that is what makes us human. Every level of love makes us human in this idea of relationship. We may have a relationship uh, with a mountain. We may have a relationship with a particular food. I love pizza. Uh, we may have a relationship with a friend or a colleague or a, 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 a teammate or a sweetheart or a child or even, even just a coworker. We have those relationships and we have these, these levels and shades of love that are all important, but the one we are looking for is the one we call true love. True love. 
The modern world has investigated it, they've deconstructed it, they've reconstructed it. All you have to do is, is search Netflix and you'll find a movie about some aspect of love on Netflix or Prime or wherever you're, wherever you're streaming. But we've also been managed to be able to corrupt it and we've managed to be able to, to confuse it in the world. I mean, we can take, for example, love of country, and that is a great thing, but it can also go to the obsession of violence. We can take justice, which is, we all agree is a good thing, but we can take it to the, without love, take it to the point of violence. We can, uh, we can, we can take it, we can, get, uh, we can love a hobby or a pastime to where it becomes an obsession. So we can corrupt it, and, and, but, but like justice, we absolutely need it. It's in our bones that we need these kind of relationships. Uh, we need something that, that speaks of home, that speaks of warmth and security, and something that, that, um, yeah, that we can delight in, that we can even find uh, relief in, and we need it at every single level, this true love. But here's the paradox. When we see Brentley and Jeffrey, when we see Marissa of New York, when we see a go to a wedding and see this couple, and we think, we kind of instinctively think it's about them, but in reality, it's about us. It's about all of us. It's just a matter of showing us that we need this like we need fresh air and like we need clean water. It is a need that we cannot run away from. And unfortunately, like justice, we have also broken it. We have also broken it. Uh, we end up hurting the people that we love the most. Uh, we end up clinging to something when we should be letting go. We end up turning our back on something that we should be holding on tightly. We should be, we should be holding on to what is pure and good instead of what is corrupt and selfish. And so we do corrupt it. We have something to offer the world, the very embodiment of love itself. John does a great job of showing this to us. Uh, he does a great job. He goes to great lengths to show us what God does, to show us, to display and demonstrate his love. So we're going to be looking at a few things. <clears throat> because of our corruption, I put this psalm up here, 8818, because sometimes I think we, this is the cry of our, our heart. This is the cry of our soul where we have to say, the darkness is my closest friend. And even when we do get it right, it will end up being corrupted one way or another because one way or another, we will either be standing at their grave site or they will be standing at ours. And the darkness is my closest friend. But God exists in relationship. We'll go back to that in just a moment. What I want to do before we look at the John, John chapter 15 passage, and I may just have to stop right in the middle of this message, okay? <laughs> because uh, this topic is so deep and so profound, and just we spend a lifetime learning about this, that as usual, I end up writing longer than I can do in 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, that's, um, sometimes that happens, and when I tell Sue, she goes, holy moly, you can't, you have to say, you have to cut it out somewhere, somewhere along the line here. So we're going to get as far as we can, but what I want to start off with is let us know, to, to be sure we understand that God exists in relationship, 
And this is super important, that God exists in relationship. Uh, John hinges the, this whole action of, of what he's telling us in his gospel. It all hinges on the remarkable person of Jesus Christ. It all comes down narrowing focus on one thing. Love is not something God does, like he does love, like he does in numerous other things. It's something God is. He exists from the very beginning in relationship. John throws us into this this pool, this, this raging waters of the Trinity from the very beginning when he says that the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He throws us right into the Word of the Trinity and when we hear the word Trinity, we kind of think of it as a puzzle or something to tease our brains. Well, that was never ever the case from the very beginning of Christianity. It was all about this dynamic flowing of love and this diversity of the Godhead and this diversity of Godhead between the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this continuing flowing of love from the very beginning. John says God is love. It is this continual dynamic that will automatically overflow into creation, into our hearts and into our souls. It's all about this movement of love that existed from the very beginning. It's not just something to tease our brain. It's an overflowing of personal love. That's what love is, always is. Whether it's just this fascinating conversation we have or an offering of consolation or encouragement, it's all about this movement that God loves and it's poured out over us. This is not just one thing he does out of many things. It is God exists in relationship. And this is so important to grasp, to understand. Because not only does God exist in relationship, that means that Jesus is, God, is love incarnate itself. Jesus actually embodies love. That is the central reality of Jesus Christ. It's not something that we just try to understand. And it's not something we say, well, okay, let's try to understand what God is and try to fit Jesus in there somehow. It works the other way around. We look at Jesus to see what God is like. That's how we see what God is like. And so we need to just keep retelling and retelling and retelling the story of Jesus, of how this creator came and dwelled among us and how he pitched his tent. When the creator God wants to pitch his tent among us, it would be natural that he would choose a human being. And that's so important. This is the story of love that it narrows down into one single human being, one single person of flesh and blood who touched lepers, who healed sick, whose flesh was also nailed to a Roman cross, that this is what love happens, that love goes into a place where it is misunderstood, where it is rejected, where it is hated, and love allows this evil to do its very worst to it, exhaust its power, and then overcomes it, and then defeats it. That's what love is all about. It enters into the hostility, it enters into the suspicion, it enters into the violence, it enters into the murder, and then conquers it. All the while drawing fire, on itself from evil, exhausts its power, and then wins out. So it's no surprise, should not be any surprise, 
that beginning in chapter 13, Jesus gives a series of speeches that go all the way through 17, chapter 17, and every single speech has to do with love. It starts off with chapter 13, verse 1. He says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And what that word means is not just the end of time where there was no more time to love. It means to the utmost, to the complete, to the perfection. There's nothing that love can do that love did not do. There's nothing more that, that love could do that Jesus did not do. He loved them to the utmost. He loved them to the end. And then we get to John chapter 15. And I think John 15 is like the, the Bill read earlier, is, is, is the literary and theological heart of this whole section. It is the story of the vine and the branches. And so we're just going to walk through this really quickly. <clears throat> and I, I divide it up into three sections of what I feel like this abiding love is trying to teach us. Abiding love is vital to our survival in the first paragraph. He says you cannot live without it. You cannot live unless you are abiding in the vine. He says, first of all, that, that, that it, is, it is necessary for your survival. It is necessary for you to, to go on. If you are going to live, you need to abide in me. Now, that word abide is really important. It's really kind of crucial for John. It appears like 40 times in his, in his book. So you know it's important. At the very beginning, they talk about the Spirit abiding in Jesus. Uh, and it goes on about these disciples from John the Baptist who said, we want to know where you're abiding, and Jesus will come and see. And so they abode where Jesus was aboding, we could say. They remained where he was remaining. And it works on the liter literal sense, but it also works in the symbolic sense. And he carries this all the way through. He abided in the village of Samaria. He abided in Galilee. Uh, he talks about the, the bread abiding with us, remaining with us. The Spirit remaining, abiding with us. And then he comes here, he says, we have to stay in here to abide. He says that Jesus' followers abide in the light and not in the darkness. He talks about a mansion where we will abide with God. This is a really important word for the book of John. And he's saying we need to abide with Jesus, in Jesus. In fact, knowing where he abides and how he abides and that he abides in us and we abide in him, that is crucial, absolutely vital to our survival. But he also says he is the vine. And Israel was the vine in the Old Testament, but, now, but Israel failed to do that. They failed to produce the fruit, so Jesus is saying, now I am the vine. And it's perfectly logical. He's the, king of Jew He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the Messiah. And so he takes the place of the vine. He takes the place of where life has come. This is where life has come out of. It's not optional. It's not optional. We have to remain in Jesus as individuals. But let me tell you something else. As a church, we have to remain in Jesus. Whatever happens, whatever we're deciding and however, however this church is going to look like in the future, first and foremost, we have to remain abiding in Jesus. It is absolutely crucial. And he says this is, this is a place of rest, actually, because there's nothing you can do to achieve this. You don't fabricate your own abiding in the vine. It's a place of rest, a gather. There is no human effort involved. We don't manufacture it. It is union that we just exist. 
And Jesus is like, he's, it says he's gathering us together, like he gathered up the scraps after feeding the multitude. After he gathers up the sheep together, he is gathering us up to abide with him. But there's also action. We are to produce fruit. We remain in the vine, and it's a natural process. You remain abiding in Jesus, and you produce fruit. What fruit? Well, my immediate reaction is the fruit of the Spirit. We produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. We produce all these things in fruit if we abide in Jesus. You don't think the world needs this? You don't think the world needs a little bit of peace and faithfulness and goodness and kindness? This is what we produce by remaining in Jesus. There is action. But it's also balanced with a little bit of judgment. He says you will be cleansed or pruned. And that's the same root word. Whenever you see cleanse in this passage, think pruning. Whenever you see pruning, think cleansing. That's the whole reason for doing this. This is restorative justice. He's going to take whatever is not Whatever is not love, and it will wither and die. That is not because it is not connected to the vine. It will wither and die, and it will be burned. Now, don't read your theology back into this and think he's naturally talking about heaven and hell. He is not. He doesn't mention this. He is simply talking about a metaphor here that whatever is not connected will eventually wither off and die. And if you go into 16, chapter 16, you'll see that he's talking about hatred and rejection. Those things will just wither away and they'll be taken up and burned and they'll be cleansed. And he says, you've already been cleansed by my word. And all of us that have trusted Christ, all of us that have had this encounter with Christ, we know that all those things we tried to do, all those works we tried to gain, all those things we tried to earn our salvation, earn, our, earn God's love, all those things are just been pruned away. Our regrets are pruned, pruned away. Our sin has been pruned away. Our hatred has been pruned away or is being pruned away. Is being cleansed. There is judgment. And the next paragraph, next paragraph, abiding in love is a mystical indwelling that unfolds into friendship. And I love this picture. That this indwelling with Christ, this abiding with Christ, will eventually unfold into friendship. Intimacy. He says, I don't call you slaves, I call you friends. Why do you call it? Why does he call us friends? Because he has given us knowledge. He has given us experience with him. We only share information with people we love and trust, don't we? Jesus only shares this with people he loves and trusts. And so he calls us friends. It is a shared knowledge that you share between friends. On an interesting side note here, if you go further on into John, <clears throat> and you go to Jesus' crucifixion, do you remember what the Jews shouted out to Pilate? Pilate was saying he wanted to release Jesus. Yep. You remember what he, they said? They said, well, if you release him, you're no friend of Caesar's. <laughs> and what did Pilate do? He chose the friendship of Caesar over the friendship of God through Christ. He chose a human kingdom over a divine kingdom. He chose a parody 
of a king instead of the real king. If you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar's. But we are friends of the king. And of course, he says, you're my friends if you obey. And you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds like a transaction to me, that we can be friends only if we can obey. Well, let me try to clear that, clarify that a little bit. There is obedience out of fear, and then there's obedience out of love. And Augustine says this is obedience out of love. And yes, there is this intimate friendship, but we cannot reduce this friendship down to our simplistic level of human friendship. Yes, there is intimacy, there's a friendship, but Jesus is still our king. And both those are involved here. But what did he tell us to do? What was that command that he told us to do? To love. That was it. So he says, you're going you're to be my friend. You're going to be a friend with me if you love. That's what we have in common. It's not some slavish, slavery kind of obedience. It's not some childish type of obedience. This is obedience that comes out of intimacy, out of knowledge, out of friendship, out of experience, out of experiencing the love of Christ. And the last paragraph, the last two verses, abiding love is not individualistic, but it is personal. What I mean by that is that it's not individualistic, like it's just me and mine, nobody else, I don't care, I don't care what anybody else does, it's just about me, my salvation. It's not individualistic, but at the same time, it is deeply personal. And this is where we find our true self. It is both personal, but in community. Because he says in these last two verses, he says, I chose you. He chose, he's chosen, choosing us. And what that means, what he's saying is that the love initiates with me, not with you. I am first. I loved you first. Jesus told Peter, says, you were, that was revealed to you because the Spirit revealed it to you. That's where it comes. It comes first. And think about it. That's how we operate as, as on, a, on a human level, don't we? I mean, when we kind of really like somebody, we meet somebody, we sort of become friends with, or we start to love them, it's because they, we recognize their inherent goodness, their inner beauty, their vulnerability, their generosity, and you go, yeah, you go, yeah, it's not my fault that I love them. They made me do it. <laughs> because they're so lovable. Well, that's what grace is. God says, we look at God and we see his inherent goodness, his inner beauty, his vulnerability, his honesty, his generosity. And you go, I can't help myself. I fall in love with him. In a sense, we actually do fall in love. We fall into his love. He chooses us and he draws that love out of us. That's how we respond. And he says, but it doesn't stop there. There is a community here. And he ends, that, he ends the section by saying, love others, love each other as I have loved you. 
To be the person that he created us to be means we be the person in community. We be, be the person in the body, participating in mutual love where there is no repayment, no other payment required. In a way, the earth is sort of a school for us how to love because we learn how to love each other. We learn how to love our children. We learn how to love uh, our, our spouse or our friends. We learn how to love our parents. And on the other side of that, well, I would say that if you have never loved someone that cost, if you've never loved someone that caused you to sacrifice, that caused you to be generous, then I'm not sure you'll be able to love God that way. But on the other side of the, the, the coin, if you've never experienced God's love for you, his unconditional love for you, then I'm not sure you'll be able to love the people next to you. I think that comes first, of knowing and experiencing his love so that we can love others. This is, of course, an ongoing process. It's a process of give and take, and that's what makes God such a great lover. He gives us freedom to do that, and our own personality starts to unfold in this freedom and this future that we have. If it's okay, I'm going to go ahead and try to finish this, and uh, we'll, we'll move on next week. Just as a, some way of applications, how abiding in the love of the Trinitarian God makes sense. How this makes sense for the world we live in. First, faith. I believe faith at its essential core is accepting that you are accepted. When it comes down to asking about faith in Christ and all the other things that go around with it, I think if you were to get down to its bare, bare bones, it's basically accepting that you are accepted, that Christ died for you in your place, that he did this out of love, that he did this out of generosity and sacrificial love for you. It's accepting that you are accepted. Number two, hope. It makes sense because of hope. It is the place of ultimate freedom and future. It is the place where we are most free. When we enter the love of God, we enter this spacious, spacious place of, of love of God where there is no room for small-mindedness. There's no room for cynicism. There's no room for hatred. We enter into this place of ultimate freedom to love. This is a great place to live when you enter a place where there's, there's no place for being small-minded but it also is a place of ultimate future, too. We will abide in the mansion, not only in the next life, but also this life, because he has a positive future for you, and he's even able to use your failures and your mistakes to transform you to that positive future here and the ultimate future of abiding in the mansion, of abiding with him forever. There is a positive future. It makes us sense because it warns us of the enemy, the happy sadist. I don't know if you've ever read The Wrinkle in Time. Great book for children. I, it just really has a wonder, I, the movie's terrible, but the book is fine, fantastic. Uh, it really has a great message for the gospel. And if there's this enemy out there, they just call it it. It's kind of like a big brain, and it corrupts. 
Well, they give it a title called the happy sadist. And I think, is there, is there a better name for the accuser? Is there a better name for the devil than the happy sadist? It warns us the happy sadist. And it makes sense because perfect fear cast out all love. Now, you may remember John chapter, 1 John 4, 18 says, perfect love cast out all fear. Well, I think that the opposite is also true, that perfect fear cast out all love, that this fear maybe of being loved, this fear of maybe even receiving love, this fear of loving someone else, this fear that is greater, that, that, that when it, it consumes us, it casts out all love that is wider and deeper and fuller than anything else. That fear causes us to run away from people, or fear may cause us to cling to somebody. But whatever it is, fear cast out love. That is the work of the happy sadist. He wants you to suffer. And related to that is number four, is the gift. God wants you to find joy in loving others. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that, that that's where we find freedom, is loving others. That's where we find joy. Every now and then I'll hear people say, especially in, in, in ultra-conservative circles, you know, that say, well, you, you know, you're loving your children too much, they're becoming an idol for you. Guess what? When you love your children, you're loving God. Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to love. We think about love. But love, love your kids with all you got because you're loving God at the same time. Love your spouse with all you've got because you're loving God at the same time. Love your friend with all you've got because you're loving God at the same time. And that's where we find joy. That's where we find happiness. It teaches us that God's love is completely unconditional. The story that John tells uh, answers our longing. Um, yes, it is, a, it, it is a desire and anguish we all have. But the story that John tells about Jesus answers that desire. And so I've got some homework for you. Take some time this week to stop and think about all the ways Jesus has loved you. Make a list. Let it wash over you. And then express gratitude if you can do that through the tears. Just make a list of all the things, the ways that Jesus has loved you over the years. Second homework, read Paul's masterpiece, 1 Corinthians 13, as if it were the first time. It's amazing. Whenever I do weddings, especially for people I don't know, I will always use 1 Corinthians 13. And I read it out loud, and I, inevitably I have people come up to me and say, where did you get that? That's beautiful. Yeah. Say, Paul wrote that. It's in the Bible. I even had an aunt, my aunt, who grew up in a preacher's house, come up to me and say, where did you get that? It's like it's been there forever, but go back and read it like if it was the first time and understand what that is all about. Love is more than a feeling. It is a sweet labor. And if it is a sweet labor, then it's going to be messy. It's going to be imperfect. Uh, it's going to be messed up. It uh, can be fierce sometimes, but it involves all of our emotions. 
because grief is the price of love. Joy is the gift of love. And when we get to our limit, wonder is what drives us back to love. That's the story of John that we have to keep retelling over and over and over again. It's what the world needs, and yet they have confused it and corrupted it so completely. But this is why the world needs the church. This is how we make sense. That we offer the world the one thing it needs, the embodiment of love itself. If it ain't love, it ain't God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have done for us. Father, I pray that my feeble attempt to try to explain something of such magnitude uh, will get past the faults and the stumbling. But we just let your love, love wash over us. Renew us again in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Tommy. We're going to close with the love of God. Would you all stand with us if you are able?